Welcome to episode 280 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We're going to be getting after a little bit of the created order today. We're into creation, and I think we're going to have a couple discussions about this, and today is going to be the beginning of something beautiful. Yeah. It's nice because we can stop trying to talk about pretemporal things in temporal language and <laughs> tripping all over ourselves. We're actually, I mean, we'll be here for a little while, and then we'll start talking about providence, and we'll get tripped all over ourselves again, but we're actually in in the point where we're going to be talking about things that actually happen in time in a frame that we can actually get our heads around for the most part, right. which is nice. It's great to be in that place. It's like in this case, time is that little warm, fuzzy fleece yeah. blanket that you can wrap yourself up in. It just feels good to be back in a place where we can actually describe what's going on for yes. the most part. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm yeah, pretty excited I'm about that. But speaking of describing things and what's going on in our world and all kinds of manner of things that we affirm and deny, let's do that thing. So what do you want to start with? We haven't done this in a while. We get we just kind of off the cuff say, are we going negative first or positive? Let's start with affirmations today. Okay. And do you I'll, mind if I go first? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So my affirmation just so happens to be in this theme of creation. I thought this would be something that fits with the topic, but it's also something weird. So again, this is like the potpourri style classification of affirmations and denials. Have you ever heard of such a thing called a moon tree? A moon tree? Yes. I mean, I have now, but I still don't know what it is. <laughs> so when I heard about this, I thought I was actually looking for a specific type of plant, like genus or species. But I'm affirming with moon trees, and I came across this because the internet is a great, wide, weird, wonderful space. And moon trees are evidently trees that were grown from 500 seeds taken into orbit around the moon by Stuart Rusa, who is the command module pilot on the Apollo 14 mission in 1971. So apparently there was this joint effort with the U.S. Forest Service and they took a bunch of seeds. So this seems a little weird to me, but I, I mean, I, I guess it's cool. Took a bunch of seeds, 500 to be in fact. They were just on board. They just orbited the moon. They brought them back and then they sent them or distributed them all across the United States. And many of these were planted at various public places as part of like a bicentennial celebration. But... This is a super cool thing. So you can go online, you can just Google this, and you'll find a listing of where all these trees are, both dead and alive. And I was floored to find out that there is a moon tree not more than 15 minutes from where I sit. There's one wow. locally. So, and it was, you can, what's great is you can look at this inventory, click on, a lot of them have links, you'll see the plaques. They're always noted. So you might be surprised that there's one of these hanging out in a place that's closer than you think. And apparently it was just this lovely experiment. So this affirmation is part like moon tree and part also because I discovered this and it was so close and it involves God's great creation and like a pretty crazy way here. I was thinking, I also want to affirm just getting to know where you live. So somebody challenged me recently and asked things like, do you, can you name uh, like three birds that are native to your area and two migratory birds? Or can you name local flora and fauna stuff that's natural can you tell where your water comes from do you know where your trash goes once and the argument they're making is that kind of thing like even 100 years ago would have been known by almost everybody living in any part of the u.s and so it was just a great reminder that god has placed us all in different parts of the world but that to be there and to appreciate where we are and it's all of its natural beauty and it's the creation the surrounding things that are part of our lives but we just take for granted I'm just affirming with coming back to that in a more cognizant way. So I'm going to try to answer some of those questions. You know, look up what birds we're talking about here and get a sense for where, honestly, where my water comes from. I mean, besides the sink, honestly, I couldn't, I mean, I have a guess, but I actually don't know. So I think there's nothing wrong with getting a better sense of your natural surroundings. I have a funny story. It's not about natural surrounding. It's about un unnatural surroundings. Uh, and this was my most embarrassing moment as a church history, as a person with a, a master's degree in church history who okay. specially studied Jonathan Edwards. Uh, we, you know this, we briefly lived in Enfield, Connecticut. And so we right. moved to Enfield, Connecticut. And I, you know, we lived there for like, I think we were there for nine or 10 months total before we ended up moving to the next place. But um, we were there for maybe four months. And I was like, you know, I, I really should like, 
take the time and figure out where the sinners in the hands of the angry God plaque is. Because I knew that Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon. He preached it multiple times, one in right. his uh, hometown, his own congregation of Northampton, uh, which I knew where that was. Or I knew where the church had li- had been. There was no church or mark or anything anymore. But I was like, I also knew he preached in Enfield, Connecticut, somewhere in this Connecticut River Valley. And I was like, but I'm sure that it's like way off the beaten path. And and I finally looked it up and it was like a block and a half away from our apartment. <laughs> like literally I, I looked at the Google map and I was like, no, no. And like I walked out there. It took me like two minutes to walk there. That's awesome. Like, Man, I'm embarrassed that I didn't do this sooner. So I'm also looking at this list of moon trees and I'm noting that out of all of the places in Pennsylvania, one, two, three of them uh, have the suffix Berg. So what's the deal with that? And then two of them aren't even names of towns. King of Prussia is not a valid name of a town. That's a title. And then New- Newton Lang- slash Langhorn. Is it in two towns? Did they plant it on the border and the, the roots have spread? The other observation I have about this is that this whole, like, we took these seeds into space and then we spread them out across the country sounds like the beginning of, like, a really, really, like, freaky science fiction thriller movie where like when the aliens come we find out that something happened to the seeds and now this is like a network of transmitters or like this the plants come alive and do the aliens bitties it just sounds like the beginning of a science fiction scary science fiction show right on i'm tracking with you which is why when i learned about it i was like so they grew them in space or they're space trees or there was something and it was like no we just just took them up and then we brought them back and we would we see if they could germinate. And then lo and behold, many of them did. And so then we yes. sent them all over the place. Seems like, like they, well, it seems like most of them are doing okay. Yes. Most of them are still around, which is crazy, right? So in, yeah. I depending, I can't remember, there is actually a former NASA scientist, a doctor who has a website where he's cataloged them all. And it's pretty extensive in that he has often links, pictures of the trees or the plaques and memorabilia or items from like the day in which they were planted. So I found the local one and I was like, this is just really super cool. So again, like to your point, what an amazing thing to be alive in God's great, not dance floor, but on (laughs) God's great green earth here. And then to like be continually surprised about the things that are in your area, like man-made or not, right? Like that there's amazing things probably nearby to where you live. And if, if anybody is like me, Sometimes you just have no sense of that until you actually go after it a little bit and see what's out there. So yeah, these were things like just basically in my backyard. So I'd love to do a little bit more hiking, a little bit more exploring, a little bit more bird watching, figuring out where, like one of the questions I was asked, this person asked me is like, do you know, do you know where it goes when you flush? And I was like, no, but is that (laughs) a thing we should ask each other? And like, you know. I mean, I, mean, I know where ours goes, where it flushes, because it's a giant <laughs> tank in the backyard. And I also know where the water comes from, because we have a well. But that's what happens when that's you live true. in the country. That's true. So. But yeah, even backing that up a little bit more, like trying to figure out like, well, how high is the water table? And, and what is that cycle like? And, and where's all that? Where does it come from, you know, in its source? So I don't know. It's super cool. I'm not necessarily saying like, we all need to like grow massive beards and go live in caves and that that is somehow more romantic than the great blessings we have. Cause being inside also nice, also nice. So especially in the winter season, but yeah. I did think this was like, just a reminder to be like, Hey, and enjoy the world. Like this idea, I think we've talked about this in some of our conversations before this idea, like when you look at the face, you know, that old song, like all things will grow dim in the face of Jesus. Like sometimes places this like disemphasis on the world because like, well, you just don't worry about this place. Cause this thing is just all like going to shed away. It's all going right. to be destroyed. But you know, these amazing gifts that God has given us, which it, it principally in some ways, it just includes where we physically are right. that to appreciate that and to lean in a little bit as an act of worship is a really glorious thing. I've definitely underemphasized that, especially recently. So I'm going to get after it. So check out the moon trees. Who yeah. knew? Sweet. Who knew? All right. What are you affirming? So mine is a book uh, anthology, I guess. That's a four-volume set. And it is called Reformed Confessions of the 16th and 17th Centuries in English Translation, uh, which is a a collection and compiled uh, list of various Reformed confessions from the 16th and 17th (laughs) centuries, uh, compiled and edited by James T. Dennison, Jr., 
And uh, one of the things, you know, we love our Reformed Confessions here on this show, and and, and yeah, we have we this do. heritage, but most of the time, and I will put myself in this list, uh, at least until I start working through these books, um, most of the time our confessional breadth is restricted to like, you know, we camp out in the Westminster or the, the three forms of unity or the London Baptist Confession, and we're probably like conversant with the other two and we can sort of dip our toes in, but we really camp out in that one. But there really is this huge, huge, huge swath of Reformed confessions that were written in various places and for various reasons through the uh, 16th and 17th century. And one thing that's cool, they're like super, super consistent. So right off the bat, when when people in a particular geographic area, you know, the, the, the Netherlands and Switzerland and France, northern France, things like that, when they started looking at the Bible, they all basically came to the same conclusions and in a lot of cases, more or less independently. And so as these networks kind of grew and then they, they ran into each other, they found out that they had all kind of independently come to the same conclusions. And some of these confessions demonstrate that. But it's also cool to see the little nuanced ways that they're different. And a lot of those are a result of other external pressures. There's this heresy in this corner of Switzerland, but not in this corner of Switzerland. So they include an article that responds to this particular teaching here and a similar group on the other side of the continent or the other side of the country didn't. So it's cool to see how those developed. So I'm super excited. It's a four volume set. You can actually get it from Reformation Heritage Books at least you could up until recently. Hopefully this price is still available or I'm going to feel real dumb. Uh, you could get the whole four volume set for $120, which is a really good price. Um, I had some birthday money uh, combined with some other Amazon cash I had uh, kicking around that I was able to get the four volume set. So I'm excited to get started on looking at them. Uh, I might do a little bit of writing hopefully when I, I get some some time. But yeah, check it out. It, and it's a it's a really nicely put together set. Like the the bindings are good. The cover is aesthetic, but not overly like garish. Um, it's just, I mean, Reformation Heritage always puts together nice looking books. Um, but it's good thick paper. It's not like thin like Bible paper, like onion paper. Um, yeah, so it's good. I, I like them. I like them very much. Jess is laughing at me. No, no, no. I love this. I'm laughing because anybody who hasn't heard us before, and this is like their first foray, just hearing like aesthetic, but not overly garish. Like, that's right. When we come at you Mm -hmm. with a book recommendation, because we're book lovers, you're going to get the full thing, the fully orbed review, which includes how handsome is that volume? Mm -hmm. I need to know how handsome is it? It's quite handsome. Yeah, I'm looking at it. It is, um, it's good looking. It's, It's good. Like, this is a kind of, it shows up at your door. You open it up, and the first thing you say is, how are you doing? Because <laughs> this is a really handsome set. So, yeah. yeah, I like stuff like this because I think that this is like a great – one, it's a great resource. So, like, it's not the kind of thing, of course, you need to – some people, I think, feel compelled to want to read through all these things, which is fine. Like, that's yeah. great. Like, cover to cover, just go one volume at a time. It's also a great thing, I just think, because it gives us a lot more exposure to the past, again, to be yeah. connected with lots of great writing around these – central and first order principles about Christianity as expressed in like a formalized confession. I think our problem many times these days is we want to maybe unwittingly recreate some of this. And because like people have the medium where they can just go online and blog about this stuff, like we talked about in the past, they create it from like an individualized point of view, thinking that they need to speak in this space when so much has already actually already been written and vetted really in this space in a much more profound way. So you recommending this, I think is a great reminder that that stuff is out there and what a blessing to be able to have access to it. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I really like about it too is, um, you know, a lot of times you find a confession online. Like if you just type like Westminster Confession of Faith, you don't necessarily know which edition and version you're getting. Yes. Um, And, you know, I tend to go to the, the modern version that's used by the OPC or PCA, which is adopted basically the 1788 edition. Right. Um, but like, if you want to look at the 1646, sometimes you have to dig a little bit or conversely, like sometimes I've had this happen where, where somebody quotes something to me from the Westminster confession and I look at it and I'm like, that doesn't look right. And then I look it up. I'm like, that's not even in this. And like, you have to make sure you know which edition you're looking at. And what I like about this is this is the historic original first editions. 
And they also, he also puts the proof text in there a little bit differently. So instead of doing footnotes, he actually Im- does in parentheticals when oh, there are proof nice. texts that are part of the original confession. The proof texts are actually um, in parentheses in the text, That's which the it makes it a little bit easier to sort of see when, when and how those um, proof texts come into the confession. Most confessions, the proof texts are not part of the body of the confession itself, but it's useful to see where those are embedded um, in a, a, just a different visual way than we are probably all used to. We're used to seeing them as footnotes, and that can be sometimes hard to map up what's going on. So check it out. They're not super cheap, but if you are someone who wants to do a serious study of theology and wants to understand the Reformed confessional heritage that we are coming out of and that we represent on this show, this really is a valuable resource. Um, and you know, some of these confessions are multiple pages long. Like they've got the Belgic confession, which is a, a pretty long in-depth confession. But then there's also like the Genevan students catechism, which is like a page and a half long. And it's like five nice. or six questions that were designed at the time to address a specific issue going on that the, the students in Geneva were facing. So they drafted this catechism to address it. So that was a, it was a useful way to help study the theology and to commit it to memory. So um, he also has, int- you know, historical introductions that are useful because a lot of these are really, really, um, you know, at the time they weren't strange terms, but countries were called different things in different contexts. So the historical introduce- uh, introductions are very valuable too. That's right on. Can we make a rule here and now to totally eradicate endnotes and then to use footnotes sparingly and yes. instead just put right in the text? Because that I'm with you. Like that is way easier to process. And again, it keeps your mind like focused on this train of thought. So you can either go to the scripture there seeing it, or you know exactly what, because sometimes, you know, like if, even if you don't know exactly the, the verse, having that, that chapter there gives you context for, okay, I know roughly where they're at. So, but to stop, pause, go to the end or even drop your eye below it. Yeah. I'm sure these are small problems, but it makes a big difference when you're reading. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of footnotes. So but I have a really particular way that I use footnotes. This just turned into the nerdiest podcast on the, on the internet. <laughs> it always does. Um, you know, primary source quotes are go in parentheses. Uh, secondary source quotes go in footnotes. And then footnotes are really useful for like if you want to make a point or an argument that doesn't really fit in the text that you present, like your main argument, you put that in a footnote. Um, end notes have no purpose and are there to screw with your head and... Um, <laughs> They really are just from from the devil. Like it's they're just a result of the fall. So, friends, don't let friends do endnotes. If you are if you have the opportunity to publish a book and the publisher's like, I need you to do endnotes, then you need to be like, I'm going to go find a different publisher. Yeah, so that's just no, don't do you. it. Mm-mm. Just say no. I totally agree with that. Well, I'm glad we've covered that. That's great. We're making a lot of progress already. So in we did a lot more prep for this episode than normal. And by that, <laughs> we just kind of got into a conversation about something that ended up being kind of a joint denial. So I'm yes. actually, if you're okay with that, we'll just joint this up. Let's do it. That was a weird way to say that. <laughs> and we will just go together on this denial, but I'll let you kind of introduce it because yes. it seems like you and I were tracking the same. I actually made a joke about this and you were like, that's actually kind of my denial. <laughs> so let's do it. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be we would be remiss. You know, this isn't a show that spends a lot of times on on current events, but uh, this is now uh, Sunday, uh, February twenty seventh in the year twenty twenty two, and uh, I don't remember if it was Monday or Tuesday or whatever, but early last week, Russia invaded Ukraine, and uh, I'm just denying that all day long. Like Russia is just an aggressor state right now, um, and primarily because of the whims of a wicked um, magistrate, a wicked ruler who is in very, very real sense, allowing his own personal pride and his own personal agenda to drive now a full scale land war in Europe, which is uh, this is the first real land war, real aggressor invasion that we've seen in Europe since uh, the end of World War Two. So it's a pretty big deal historically to see tanks rolling in from one country to another. You know, we had, um, you know, Russia next Crimea in uh, 2014. And that was a little bit different because most a lot of the people in Crimea were kind of okay with that. It was a sort of like a reassignment of land. But this is a full scale invasion from a domestic population that does not want Russia there. Um, They do not want they, they consider themselves an independent country. And, you know, Christianity is not necessarily 
fully opposed to the concept of war in a fallen world. But Christianity historically has had something called just war theory, uh, which I'm not an expert in, so I'm not going to get into the details of it, but just war theory, which helps Christians reflect on whether or not one civil magistrate or ruler or government attacking another one um, or going to battle with another one is a justified action. Um, and there, hands down, um, nothing that has happened in Ukraine in the past few days uh, at the hands of the Russian military fits the definition of just war. So as Christians uh, who are committed to the, the truth of the Bible and are committed to justice, real justice, um, and and committed to integrity and, and God's moral law, there is no one who should be looking at this war in in the Ukraine or in Ukraine, excuse me, um, and say that it's okay. So so that's that's my denial. Russia just all day long needs to stop. They just need to like stop pack it. up their stuff and go home. Stop it. Yeah, you yeah. said it best. I think that. There's, this is a great reminder that there's so much happening in our world that we're going to expect or should come to expect rumors of war and wars themselves. And this drives us back to everything we've talked about heretofore about the sovereignty of God, the purpose of his providence. And it doesn't remove the, the fact that we ought to, I think, continue to be praying, of course, about the situation, about Ukraine in particular. But uh, I'm with you. Like, please just stop it. Yeah. Just stop it. Yeah, fun little fact. Um, this is chalk this up in the words mean things category. Um, when you hear someone say the the Ukraine, that actually is a linguistic leftover um, that actually indicates that Russia is a sovereign sovereign over over Ukraine. So we're used to in in America we're used to saying the USA because of the way right. that the name of our country is constructed. It needs to have an article in front of it. But when you say the Ukraine instead of Ukraine, what you're doing is you're calling back to a historical reality where this territory that is now a nation called Ukraine was a subterritory of the country Russia. And it was called the Ukraine because Ukraine is a word that basically means like the front or like the borderlands or something like that. Uh, I think it was that. Um, I might be wrong about the specifics of what it what the translation is, but it it referred to a characteristic of this region. So it was called the Ukraine. Like we might call it the Southwest or um, like the metropolitan area. Like it was a descriptor of a region. So when when Ukraine as a nation became an independent nation, they kept that descriptive word as their name, but they dropped the 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 definite article was dropped to signify that this is no longer the region called the Ukraine. It was now a nation called Ukraine. So even, even little things like that have important, um, you know, important historical elements to it. And so I think it's careful that we're, it's important that we're careful with our language. And you hear a lot of, um, a lot of news commentators that still say the Ukraine because it's so easy. It just rolls off the tongue that way. And it's what that area was called for many, many years when it was the USSR. And yeah, so just an interesting little fact. I did see a funny video um, coming out of out of Ukraine. This old older guy, I don't know how old he was, but he rolls up in a, a car and he rolls up next to a Russian tank that had broken down by the side of the road. This sounds like the intro to a joke but it's not, it really happened. <laughs> he rolls up next to this tank and he gets out of the car and you, it's on, I think it's on his dash cam or something like that. And he yells up to the soldier who's sitting up on top of the tank. And he says, did you run out of gas? And the soldier kind of chuckles and he says, yeah, I did. And he says, well, where are you going? And the soldier says something like, I don't know. And the guy just, just nerves of steel. He just goes, well, I can tell you how to get back to Russia if you want. (laughs) And I was like, that is what they're dealing with right now. And to be honest with you, and this is a stronger statement than people are probably used to me making. Um, Although some people are probably like, Tony makes really strong statements all the time. What's wrong with him? Um, (laughs) Honestly, this is an act of war and aggression that um, not only is it probably the case that if Russia does not win this war, um, uh, Vladimir Putin's people will turn on him and will probably execute him. Uh, but he deserves that. This is a this is a, a wanton act of mass violence and murder. Um, there are videos right. online. And, at, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes soldiers do things in war that their commanding officers would not condone and did not order them to do. 
but are still in a certain sense responsible. There's a video online, it's insane, where there's cars driving down the street and you can see Russian tanks are also driving down the street. And you can see a Russian tank just reorients itself and runs over a car. There's no wow. way that that was not an attempt to kill the occupants of the car. And somehow the way the car crumpled, the, the person who was in the vehicle survived. Um, there's There's footage of, you know, like missiles being shot at apartment buildings that are, are clearly not military targets. These are residential apartment buildings. Um, you know, most of them are unoccupied at this point because people have fled, either fled into the country, uh, into like the rural areas, or they're in bomb shelters. Um, but it's clear that the Russian military is not limiting themselves to military targets. They're targeting civilians. They are targeting uh, non, non-combatants. They're targeting non-military uh, assets. Um, and, you know, whether or not that's on the orders of the Russian military or on the orders of Vladimir Putin, I'm not getting choked up. I have like a frog in my throat here. Um, whether or not it's on their orders, they're still responsible for how their soldiers behave. And there's been no statement of condemnation or withdrawing from those actions. There's been nothing of the sort. So, yeah, I, I this is a bad situation. So we should all be praying for the people of Ukraine. It is. That's a good reminder that no matter what here, this is a real conflict. And already there's a lot of reporting about, mm-hmm. of course, tragically, the many deaths that are occurring in these strikes. And that's just tragic. The, these are people. And, uh, you know, it, it's just sometimes it's easy when we, we sit in comfortable places and we look at this news. And it's not that we're entertained by it. We are moved by it to some degree. But we should be moved in, in prayer and in mourning even for what's going on there. It's there's a lot of this thing happening in our world, right? There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of genocide. It reminds us that we want our Lord Jesus to come, that the creation that we're about to speak about, what he set in order, we're looking for that new creation that's both manifested in how he saves his people unto himself, but also that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And I guess we end this by saying Maranatha, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we're coming into this place of, creation from, I think, a pretty extensive back catalog now that has really led us to the point where it's time to talk about, as you said, these temporal things. And let me just read just a verse from, or two verses from Psalm 33 to kind of just get our hearts and minds in that right place. This is uh, verse eight and nine. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. And whenever I think about creation, and we're going to talk about specifically the created order and different uh, basically expressions of how we understand this creation narrative and the created order, I always go back to Bavink on this because I think in his reform dogmatics, I'm guessing you would not disagree with me on this, but in his reform dogmatics, I think he's so good, especially with creation. And I always come back to this quote, which is I think from the first volume, he says, creation is the act of God through which by his sovereign will, he brought the entire world out of non-being into being that is distinct from his own being. So even as we go through and start to I can kind of enumerate the various ways which we understand the created order, it's so helpful to remember that what we're talking about is our viewpoint is explicitly and unapologetically theocentric from the very beginning. That yeah. creation is this act of God. And that definition is important, I think, because it clearly upholds this creator-creature distinction. I think that's going to play out as we see like all these different ways to understand it unfold. So creation is another order of being other than that divine being. So the divine being is, created being is brought into existence by God. And so I just want to put that out in the face because... Some people might think we're going to rush over that. I think we're going to continue to return to that kind of theme. But what we wanted to talk about here, I think predominantly, is what's out there in terms of understanding kind of Genesis 1 and the way in which these days unfold. And perhaps like we talked about, Tony, maybe it's best to start with, here's the stuff that you can put in the nonsense column. Like just (laughs) this is the thing that is not applicable. You're going to hear it out there or you're familiar with it. But traditional Orthodox Christianity would say that is a no-go. Yeah. Yeah. And just to be clear, when we say that these are views that we we are willing to exclude as possibilities, um, we're not therefore saying that anyone who holds these views 
are therefore not Christian. So there are lots of Christians out there that are wrong about lots of things that don't make them not Christian. There are things that I'm sure, I think it was R.C. Sproul who said, I'm I'm pretty sure I've got about 80% of it right. The the problem is I just don't know which 20% I've got wrong. Well, there there are things that I know I've probably... I shouldn't say I know the things, but I, there are things that I know I'm not correct about. Um, you know, the fact that I've changed views on things over the years demonstrates that there are things that I'm wrong about, um, or at least have been wrong about. And so we should say that out of the gate here, that these views that we're going to talk about that we're willing to say, this is just not an option. This is not a valid interpretation of the text. And we're going to go over them pretty quickly because I I think it's pretty easy to see why they're not. Um, Those things don't make someone not a Christian. They just make someone not a Christian, not, not a Christian who's not correct about this particular element of what the Bible teaches. And so there are a number of views. We're not going to cover all of them. Some of them are very particular. Some of them are very um, nuanced. But broadly speaking, there are views that would affirm um, in, in some way or another that the, um, the Genesis 1 account, that it is historic in some sense, and that we should understand these as events that actually happened in more or less the way that the text describes. And then there are views that would say the text is entirely entirely allegorical. It's entirely mythological. Right. And so those views, those that second set of views, we would exclude entirely to say to say that right the, the Bible is presenting as though it were history, something that is utterly ahistorical are views that I don't think that a Christian, a, a reformed evangelical Christian can can possibly hold consistent with the rest of their reformed convictions on how the scripture functions. And so the first of those views that I would probably say needs to be excluded is, is what I, you know, what's commonly called the day-age theory. Um, and what that typically argues is that the text is presenting in sort of these um, sequential ways, real concrete periods of time that um, happened sometimes in this same sequence, but that when it says it, it encompasses a particular day and says that this, you know, on day one, light was created. On day two, such and such happened. On day three, this other thing happened. That those descriptions are actually encompassing usually millions of years. And a lot of times this is an attempt to try to synthesize um, the insights that uh, are supposedly gained by modern sciences regarding the age of the universe or the age of age of the earth or something like that. Trying to look at the text and say, I still want to preserve some semblance that the text is presenting me right. with facts, but I'm going to I'm going to interpret these facts in light of what modern scientific enterprises tell me. So when it says that the Lord said, "Let there be light," and there was light. And there was evening and morning the first day. What that really means is something like there was a big bang and the big bang generated light. And then over the course of billions of years, expansion, I've been watching a lot of big bang theory. So now I've got that bare naked lady song stuck (laughs) in my head. Expansion started. And that's what it means when it says, let there be light. Right. And then they'll take that same kind of principle and extend it into other, um, other areas of this, right? Let the let the land bring forth vegetation. Well, they're going to talk about that. Like this is the development of plant life over right. the course of billions and millions of you know millions of years on the planet Earth. This is the development of plant life. Um, and I know a lot of people are really really jazzed up about this. And sometimes you'll get some people who will. Um, and like I said, these are usually well intentioned Christians. It's not people that are trying to twist the Bible. Um, but they'll use this and they'll sometimes even pull in, well, the word yom doesn't mean necessarily always mean 24 hours. Sometimes it means this other thing. And, and I'll, we'll talk a little bit about why that's not a good interpretive choice here. But I, I think this is a view that although it's very well intentioned, it actually does a lot of damage to the biblical testimony of how creation functioned. And it does a lot of damage to the concept of how God functions as the creator, I think is the biggest issue. Right. That, and that's why I thought it was important to start with Bob Inc. As you know, you can almost never go wrong with starting with Bob Inc. So honestly, that's a hedge. It's just safe. But I think he's right on. I was going to say that we should have put a time stand, stamp for over under on when the word yam first gets used because it was bound <laughs> to happen and bound to happen a lot thereafter. So yeah, you're right. So like people will say like that. The word, the way in which the Hebrew word day, yam, is interpreted is at least three ways, as far as I know. One, you could have like the daylight period 
in the diurnal cycle as in Genesis 1, 5 and 14, 16, 18. Um, you could have a, a normal 24 hour period or you could have this indefinite period of time as in like Psalm 90, which is right. typically where people go or like, um, what is that? Like second Peter three, like one day with the Lord is like a thousand right. years yeah, and a thousand it, years in one day. This view loves so, doing that. Yes, exactly. Like there, there's all that. Stuff. So even all that aside, I want to just kind of like dovetail into like both I, you're, I think you're right on, of course, what you're saying. And I like the categorization generally of those two things. I was almost like long gospel style. It was almost Lutheran. <laughs> like you've got, you've got all the allegorical stuff, which is really helpful. Right. Because like that all automatically like pushes out a lot of things. And then, so then we just need to deal with this kind of this one other group over here. So, Here's the thing that I find interesting about day age theory is that there's two elements essential, I would say, in like any kind of evolutionary scheme, whether that's like theistic or atheistic. You need long periods of time and they assume validity of this like molecules to man kind of evolutionary scenario. Right. So, of course, like atheists are not going to care anything about the biblical account, but there's this group, theistic evolutionists they're trying to profess like a certain allegiance to the scriptures. And the thing is they have to attempt to harmonize like this biblical account, which in some ways they're saying is a little representation, at least that there's something of value in what's being said there that reflects the reality of what occurred, but they have to marry that up with the evolutionary scenario, which requires long periods of time and this molecules to man situation. So what happens then is to harmonize those you end up with day age theory. So even that itself kind of has like a progenitor, like there's something even before that, I think that, so even when people subscribe to that, I say, well, you realize that, that you're really coming from, or it, that view is necessitated by at least yeah. some kind of theistic evolution, which I say is probably also on our list, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it should be said, and I think it's pretty obvious with these first two examples, it's not as though these all fit in these hermetically sealed off categories where like you have day right. age theory and people only believe these five five elements of day age theory. And then you have theistic evolution. They only believe these elements. Day age theory and theistic evolution are are hand in hand, right? You you as Jesse's saying, you can't really have theistic evolution and for example, young earth creation. Like you just can't have right. those two positions and hold both of those consistently. There are some we'll get into when we get to the ones that I think are biblical possibilities. There are some where you could actually kind of marry two uh, two positions that seem like they might be at odds at first, but you can actually hold them together, even though they commonly aren't. So theistic evolution now is any theory which would affirm more or less in whole the the principles of Darwinian evolution, right? This, this natural selection causing change over time, minute changes over time that eventually sort of bifurcate species into, into subspecies and then full species, full speciation. And again, there are a lot of things about this view that it, on first blush feel like, oh yeah, this is great. We can just we can just take what the science academy says about Darwin and about how, you know, complex beings came or complex creatures came into being. And then we just sort of like throw God on top of that. And maybe this is right. a little bit of a character, but I don't think so. You just kind of throw God on top of that. Like, well, he's superintending that process. But right. there are a number of issues that just don't work. Primarily... You, I don't think you can come to the biblical account and not really radically change what the text is actually articulating and arguing um, and come away with the sufficient time scale that you need to, to come up with something like a theistic evolution. Now, it should be said, I don't know anyone that actually argues this, but you could say that somehow God made it so every single generation of new, you know, new creatures after one dies was a huge evolutionary leap forward. And so God God somehow superintends this rapid evolution model. Um, but even that then still requires death. And I know some people will draw this distinction between animal death and veget you know vegetation death and human death. Um, and I don't think that I don't think that the text really justifies that. But either way, you have to walk away from theistic evolution, uh, walk away from the text with several several presuppositions that the text itself does not present. And the other element that I think you have to, when you're thinking about Genesis one particularly is you have to let the scriptures interpret the scriptures, right? You can't, you can't come to Genesis one with your own presuppositions and your own external conclusions that you're, you're sort of trying to pigeonhole into Genesis one. You have to look at things like, all right, well, if, if this theistic evolution thing is true, 
then how come nobody really ever even postulated something similar to it until the Darwinian evolution or Darwinian revolution, right? In the 1800s, we don't see anybody prior to that postulating something like a theistic evolution. There are people, right. Augustine is the most famous example, but there are people who look at the text of Genesis and don't see six sequential ordinary 24 solar days, right? They, they go to the text, they see something different. But that said, nobody prior to, let's be generous, like 1800, nobody prior to 1800 looked at Genesis 1 and 2 and came away with anything even close to resembling billions of years of time and, um, you know, evolutionary, theistic evolution or, or some sort of uh, adaptation over time model uh, with God as kind of like the superintendent of that. It just wasn't there. And so when you're coming to the text and you find that someone has an interpretation like that, that's not present in the history of the church until very recently, uh, and also doesn't seem to comport with the way that the rest of the Bible reflects on Genesis one, and also doesn't seem to comport with what the, the really like plain meaning of the text probably says to the average reader. Um, not that the plain reading of the text to the average reader is the gold standard, because it's not. There are lots of places where you have to do a lot of hard work to get at what the text is saying. But if those three things combine and that's present in an interpretation, you can pretty much just sort of exclude that interpretation as a viable possibility. Right. I mean, in this system, God, maybe this is an extreme, but I'm, I'm with you because I like what you said about it's, I don't think it's unfair to say like you're kind of layering God on, on top of this philosophy, but in that system, God is really not honestly the omnipotent Lord of all things. Mm-hmm. He's integrated into the evolutionary philosophy. So it does make him in a strange way. Like he becomes God of the gaps. You know, right. Like, Theistic evolution is kind of only this workspace allotted to God. That's part of nature in which evolution cannot explain with the means that are present at its disposal. So we kind of bring God in to kind of help smooth over that process and say that he becomes a function of the very things that he's created in a way. This is all kinds of like weird theological ramifications, but, and we already I'm seeing don't even have time to get into all that good (laughs) stuff. Like we thought we were going to rock through these really quick, but maybe it is helpful. Like you're saying to kind of try to unpack a little bit of why, even just on the surface, why these things are not compatible. I think that's really helpful because I think there is a temptation among Christians sometimes to say, well, this is the great happy medium, isn't it? Like neo-Darwinism, we can kind of appropriate that in a Christian way. And doesn't Yom allow for the possibility that we have these massive time periods? Doesn't Adam having to name all the animals, doesn't that kind of say that we have no real sense that this is an actual day, even if it's some cycle of light and dark, that somehow what we're seeing here is this massive way in which things are changing very slowly. And now can't we be at harmony with the, you know, the atheist to some degree or with those, not to mention that like, Oh man, we just don't have the time. Do we, we just don't have the time loved ones. Okay. There's so many more things I want to say about evolution, but we'll, I'm just going to stop now. Yeah. So I'm going to make a a co-executive decision that we've sort of anticipated was going to happen. We're going to stick to just the, uh, just the views that we think are not possibilities for this episode. And we'll progress on to the views that we think are a possibility in the next one. And I think, I think you're right. Like theistic evolution. I mean, it's right there in the name, right? It's evolution that's been made theistic. It's, it's not its own thing. It's, it's, it's turning theism into sort of like a parasite on the back of evolution. It's like, we're going to do, we're going to do evolution, but we're going to make it theistic evolution. And I don't say that to be pejorative to people who hold that view. Um, you know, like most famously, like the Biologos foundation is probably like the most prominent art, you know, advocate of this view that's within evangelicalism. There are some people out on the outskirts or on the outside of evangelicalism that would hold a view like this. Um, but it just, it just doesn't work. And, you know, I, I don't want to get into all the Hebrew and I'm not, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I, I'm, I'm not super competent to do that anyways. But most of the arguments, um, most of the arguments rely on this sort of like substandard word fallacy with the word yom. And I do want to touch base on that because when you Let's first hear this argument, it sounds plausible. And I, I, I think a lot of people are convinced by it because they, they just don't know any better. And so the argument goes... Jesse kind of alluded to it earlier. We were talking about day age, but the argument goes, the word yom, which is the Hebrew word for day, uh, has a range of meanings. And that's true of all words, right? There's no word in any language that doesn't have a range of possible meanings. 
And so they say, well, so let's look at the possible range of meanings and see if one of these ranges of meanings fits with the, w- the way we want to read this text. And so they look at it and go, well, yep, it's clear that sometimes the word yom refers to a 24-hour calendar solar day, just like we know now. They would also look at it and say, all right, well, like day sometimes only refers to the light part of the day as like day as contrasted to night. Okay, that's true. Sometimes they'll talk about day as though it refers to like a period of time of indeterminate length. So like in the day of King Josiah. Well, that does that refer to his his entire reign? Does it refer to a particular day? It's kind of like we might say like back in the day. It's like this hypothetical indefinite deter, indeterminate period of time. And then they'll say, well, since it can be this indeterminate period of time, then why can't it be billions of years? Why can't it be millions of years? And so what's happening now is is what they're doing is it's kind of like a weird argument from lexicon kind of a thing. They're saying, here's all the possible meanings. Um, do any of these, and I don't think this is consciously the argument that's made, although I've seen it made consciously this way. Do any of these meanings allow me to understand this text to have these long periods of time? Because I, wanna, I want to appropriate the I'm doing air quotes, the insights of modern science in reference to this, the date, the age of the earth or the way that animals develop, whatever it is. I'm wanting you to appropriate those insights. So do any of these words, these possible meanings for you, do any of these actually give me what I need to make that interpretation work? And the problem with this is that this is precisely the opposite way that you should interpret a text like this. Right. It's exactly. 100% the opposite of how you should come to a text. And when you have a word that you don't quite know what it means... This isn't how you determine what the word means. So, for example, if I uh, if I somehow decided I wanted to call podcast flooper snaps, if I wanted to change the word podcast and use the word flooper snap and let's do it. And I said to my wife, I woke up on Sunday morning and I said, "Don't forget that at three o'clock today, I'm going to record the flooper snap with Jesse." My wife would immediately, instantly know what I was talking about. It just, the context is clear about what I'm talking about. Now let's pretend that flooper snap was actually a word that had, had meaning to it. And there was a range of meaning, you know, maybe it means like, maybe it means this, maybe it means that maybe it refers to a YouTube episode, or maybe it refers to podcasting, or maybe it refers to a song, right? Maybe those are the three possibilities. It wouldn't make sense for my wife to go, well, you know, I really want Jesse and Tony to release an album. And so I'm going to choose to understand flooper snap to mean song. And so Tony, well, I mean, why can't it mean that? Of course it can mean right. that. So of course this is what Tony meant. Now, now let's pretend that this was fast God stuff. Now we don't know. Maybe it does mean song. <laughs> Maybe it means podcast. Maybe it means something else. But in right. the context of the sentence, Tony and Jesse at three o'clock on Sunday are going to record the flooper snap. It's totally clear what that means. And I would argue that in the context of reading Genesis 1, it's totally clear what it means. Whatever whatever Yom is referring to, the image that the text is giving us is a standard solar calendar day. Now, when we get to the views that are within the range of possibility, we'll talk about some views that still think Yom means 24-hour solar calendar day, but don't also still mean that's a concrete historical reality of how it actually happened. So those two things can cohere. But one thing that I think you have to exclude is any view that tries to come to the text and say, basically day doesn't mean day. Day day must mean something totally different than than what the context appears to say. Because what the text seems to say is that on the first day, there was evening and morning. and, And in that period of time, God did this thing. And then on the second day, God did this thing, and there was evening and morning, and that was the second day. Well, that sequence of, of words, even if we had no idea what Yom meant, even if even if it was whippersnap, if that was right. what the Bible said instead of Yom or instead of day or whatever, we would still be able to tell that this means the text is presenting us as though over the course of these six routine periods of time that we call a day, God executed these six different kinds of actions, these six different decrees that brought about all of creation. So we have to come to the text doing proper exegetical work and interpreting words in their context. 
It's not that a word brings inherent meaning with it and we have to understand what that meaning is. It's that a word has a possible range of meanings and where that falls in the possible range of meanings is determined by the surrounding context and how the word is used. So these views that want to say, well, yom could mean thousands of years. Yeah, I guess maybe it could. I mean, I don't know. I don't know off the top of my head anywhere else in the Bible where Yom refers to that sort of drastically long period of time. I can't think of any. Maybe they're out there. I don't know. But they t- they go from well, Yom could be a refer a reference to an indeterminate amount of time to Yom necessarily in this context does because look at science. Of course, it means to an inter- indefinite period of time or an indeterminate period of time because we know that the world was not created in six concrete days. The text doesn't seem to know that. The text seems to understand that whatever we're referring to is happening over the course of six more or less normal days. Again, we'll get to some other details and nuances about how that that may still not necessarily mean six calendar days and still be within the realm of possibility. But if you're not seeing yam meaning yam, I mean, that's kind of what we're saying. Yam doesn't mean yam. There's a word in Hebrew that means like thousands of years. There's a different linguistic set of of terms that refers to that period of time that more readily would have fit into this context if that's what Moses was trying to write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Right. And of course, there's other examples where we don't debate this, but it's like, there's easy, it's easy. There's no debate like Yom Kippur. Nobody there right. is like what we're the talking about. Millions years of atonement. Yeah. yeah and that, that's a, I mean, obviously, that's a really simple and straightforward, obvious example, but I think it proves the point. There is, I think what you're saying is basically we got argument for primary meaning and right. we just take advantage of that because we use it all the time in all of our communication. Right. And here, like, here's some more Yom facts. Like you said, the preponderant usage of Yom or day, of course, in the Old Testament, is as a normal day, like a normal day experienced by like people. And it could be limited to hours of light, but that's also a common understanding, right? Like when you say it's Tuesday or I'm going to be gone for the day or whatever, like you're generally speaking about like those waking hours that represent, because in fact, like if you know somebody that works like in the, like the night shift, that gets super confusing. They actually have to, they would clarify their waking hours, even in the course of speaking about what their day is like. So the word does occur 1,704 times just in the old Testament and the overwhelming majority of which have to do with this normal cycle of daily living on earth. So it is the preponderant usage. Like you said, that's an argument from primary meaning. And then you already covered something I was going to say, which was there is like an argument from explicit qualification. Moses like carefully qualifies each of the six creative days with the phraseology evening and morning. The qualification seems, and I'll put that in course, like seems in the sense that this is obvious, deliberate in defining the concept right. of a day. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like it's, it's almost kind of funny. You actually have to do a lot of work then to say, what does that mean? Then he keeps saying there was morning and there was evening yeah. the second day or the third day. So all of that, that those occur like 37 times, I think like in the course of like Genesis one. So like all of this instance of speaking about which is supposed to be normative. This, this also goes back to the fact that the narrative Again, if you just evaluate this, like it's just a piece of literature, it seems to be very historic and not symbolic. So yeah. then there's a, there should be, I think what you're saying in addition is because of that, there should be like a normative or default or strong presumption, initial presumption that it should be taken in its obvious sense. Right. And the obvious sense is it's a day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And the one last view that I want to just touch on, and and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. It's another one of these um, coming to the text with some sort of presupposition and then finding a way to make the text fit that presupposition views. And this is sometimes called gap theory. Um, And it, it sometimes goes along with some of these other theories, right? And the reason is because it's called gap theory. And I don't remember who it was that postulated it, but it's a relatively new within the last 200 or so years view is that there's a gap in time between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And so Genesis 1 and 2 reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Right? And so um, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, or Genesis 1-2, what they say is they're trying to understand why we have this first clause, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Right? That seems like a completed concept, like an activity. And then the next is the earth was without form and void and uh, darkness, so on and so forth. And so what gap theory postulates is that in that, that 
theoretical space between Genesis 1, 1 and Genesis 1, 2 is where God expelled Satan from heaven. Right. And so God threw Satan down from heaven and the, the physical descent of Satan into the earth caused this catastrophic damage to the earth. And so, so that's where now the world is formless and void. So God created the world and it wasn't formless and void. And then God threw Satan down along with all of his demons. And now the, vo- the world has become formless and void by the damage done by that. And sometimes this view is... Um, it's not always even clear to me what this view is trying to accomplish, to be really honest with you. It it doesn't, I think sometimes this view comes along with a particular kind of dispensationalism that is very interested in making everything neat and tidy and making sure that every theological position that they have has a nice, neat address in the Bible. And so this kind of dispensationalism also is very, uh, very tied to charismatic um, spiritual warfare type views. And so they want to have the fall of Satan be something catastrophic and, and they want to have a neat address for it in the Bible. And there isn't a neat, like a neat address line for it in the Bible. We don't know when that happened exactly. We don't know what, what kind of damage it might've caused. We don't have any evidence that it did cause any damage. Satan is not a physical being. So throwing him to the earth should not cause physical damage. Right. This view also sometimes is, um, used to explain like the Cambrian explosion of fossils, yes. right? So there's, yep. there's this pos- there's this period of time where there's, there's slow, slow buildup of fossils in the record. And then all of a sudden there's, there's just tons of fossils everywhere. And then again, after that, there's a, a relatively slow period of fossil development. There's, there's layers that don't have a lot. And so this view sometimes is used to explain the Cambrian explosion. And they argue that when it says God created the heavens and the earth, it actually means God created the heavens and the earth and a bunch of animals and stuff too. Like it was a full creation. It wasn't just the physical heavens and the physical earth. It was also a populated area. And now the destruction that this wrought when Satan was cast down is why we have all these fossils in the Cambrian explosion era. Well, I think you can see, dear listener, how this is sort of the same kind of thing, right? It's taking a pre-existing situation and a pre-existing preposition or proposition that is held by the person and trying to find a spot in the Bible where it can fit. And so they take what seems to be a little bit of a conceptual difference. And we'll talk, I'll talk about what I think that difference is next week when we talk about the views that are reasonable. They take this little conceptual difference and they slam an entire theology of demonology into that little gap. And that's why it's called the gap argument. I don't know that the original person who postulated it would call it the gap argument. It's a little, that's a little pejorative, but more or less, they just slam everything into that little conceptual space between Genesis one and uh, one, one and one, two. And for all of the same reasons that we have to exclude the other things that there doesn't seem to be any indication that anyone in history prior to this person saw vast expanses of time and catastrophic cataclysms in, in this little gap between one and two there, nobody saw that until this, whoever this was that postulated it did sometime right. in the last 200 years. Right. Yeah. It's a couple of fun facts here. So again, this chalk this up under, if you create a theory, you can name it whatever you want. And the more you kind of make it verbose, the more important and legitimate it sounds. So have you, have you often heard this called like ruin restoration creationism, yeah. which is like a mouthful, right? So, and that's probably where you're going to see it if you look it up pedagogically or academically. But I was going to say the same thing. Here's what's interesting to me is like this in particular paralleled like the emergence of modern geology. And what it basically did is like allowed Christian scientists a way to affirm their faith in the face of like this scientific work that was saying, well, listen, the earth is like millions and billions of years old. And so there was then this like acquiescence in some ways appropriation to pull that in, but at the same time, try to preserve something about what we knew what the scriptures were saying. And here's another fun little fact, acceptance of ruin restoration creationism actually spread more because it was referred to in the notes of the one 1917 Schofield reference Bible. Yes. So this is like another place where it was, again, you have coming alongside these alleged, and again, I think if we haven't before, we've talked about like the scientific method and there's a lot we could say there about like it being a method and there being theories and that how that is important. And we sometimes fail to understand what that means, but a lot of people I've seen have relied on the gap theory or the ruin restoration creationism because of modern science's like interpretation of this data that again, the earth was like super crazy, wicked old. So they believe that geology proves that the earth is like, you know, 
super old. And so they believe dinosaur bones, and like you said, the Cambrian explosion, which these are just fun things you should drop at parties, occurred long before the appearance of humans. But they refuse to believe that humans evolved from apes, and they strongly adhere to six-day creationism. And then what do we do? Let's just put a gap in there. Right. Because that way we can – it's almost like a way, let's just explain away everything and include everything at the yeah. same time. So it, I am with you. Like I think that we ought to be fair when we look at these explanations – and understand their origins because there, there's nothing wrong, of course, with trying to understand science in, because these are both things God's given us, right? Science and like the natural world and the scriptures. But there does seem to be this case where at times Christians have overemphasized scientific theory to the exclusion of the Bible, the detriment of the Bible in a way that somehow that trumps what the Bible says. So we've just got to make sure that the Bible can fit into uh, scientific theory as opposed to the yeah. other way around, which again, scientific theory is in many ways a theory. So there, there's a lot more that could be said there, but I think that uh, it's important again, just to like be fair and honest and transparent. You, you all are like reasonable people, brothers and sisters, like go Google all the stuff that Tony and I have talked right. about. You'll find lots of wonderful writing on them. And I think you'll get a better perspective on where they came from and origins are important, right? I've watched a lot of Star Wars and I've seen a lot more Marvel <laughs> movies than I ever thought recently. seems to me like origin is a critical element of both character and context. Yeah. And it's not fair to say like all these things came about in the same way, like all of these views. I think that's, right. that's in part what we're after here. And we want to, of course, let the scriptures dominate any worldview. Like it's, it's almost like saying, listen, we have to let our consciousness, our cogency, like all this bow before God in his scripture, in his word. And that should be like our initial stance, even with things like this that that are like you know particularly lofty and explaining. But I have a feeling that sometimes we get nervous as Christians, and we're just like, oh my gosh, well this article, this scientific report came out that said yeah. like the Earth is X million years old, and therefore now I got to reinvent, so to speak, my theology. I want to keep most of my theology, but somehow make sure that I can make sure that it aligns with this particular new claim or article. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe one last thing I'll, I'll say before we wrap it up is, you know, we, we divided these into views that, that hold the Genesis account is more or less mythological, more or less ahistorical. You could also divide the views into views that come to the text with naturalist presuppositions and views that don't come to the text with naturalist presuppositions. Right. right. So if you look at the views we've excluded, Right. The um, the day age theory or theistic evolution attempts to, to understand Genesis one in naturalistic terms that Genesis one and two, but mostly Genesis one is presenting a naturalist, the natural order of things that things develop according to the way that naturalistic or um, uh, materialistic presuppositions bring us. Right. The day the gap theory is actually very similar. Uh, I used to comment, you know, the, the books. um Piercing the Darkness, This Present Darkness, uh, Frank Peretti's sort of angel, demon, warfare kinds of books. What they actually do is they take a very supernatural reality and they treat them in very natural terms, right? right. And angels, are, angels and demons are having physical battles over the course, over these towns, and they're, they're physically interacting with the, the, the world. And that's what's going on in, in the spiritual realm. Well, this is basically postulating that like the fall of Satan and everything that that may or may not have caused is a, is a natural explanation for what's going on. And so it comes to the text with these presuppositions of naturalism, and then it pigeonholes the text of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 into those naturalist presuppositions. To be fair, some people, I'm looking at you, Ken Ham, do the same thing with the flood, Right. The flood all of a sudden becomes an explanation for everything that modern natural science tells us that doesn't fit into what we think the scripture ordinarily would say. And so the striations on the Grand Canyon, well, it's a result of the flood. The Cambrian explosion and all of these fossils, well, it's because all the animals died in the flood. That's a little bit of a better explanation in my mind than the gap theory, but there are still some serious problems with treating a very much supernatural event as though it was just another natural event that all of the right. outcomes and consequences of the flood, all the outcomes and consequences of Satan's fall to the earth, all of those things that are supernatural events in nature, supernatural in nature 
uh, somehow have all these natural consequences that we can nice and neatly trace back to this supernatural event as though it was just a regular, ordinary, natural thing. So we have to be careful when we come to the text of Genesis 1 and really the whole Bible, what presuppositions that we're bringing with it. And we're talking about bad creation views that just don't really work. Almost all of those come to the text and try to treat the, the creation of all things out of nothing as though it was a natural event that God did. Right. God did it, but it was more or less a natural event. Right. That's really the problem with most of these views. So we're going to talk next week, unless something crazy happens, we're going to talk next week about some of the views on Genesis 1 and creation that work, I think, from a biblical perspective. Um, you might be surprised to see what we might include in that. Uh, so you have to come back and check that out when we do that. Um, and then we'll, we might spend a little bit of time, hopefully on next episode, talking about where exactly Jesse and I land, because I don't think we land in the exact same position. That's pretty rare on, on this show. Um, but we'll find out, I guess. I don't know. I, yeah, I we'll honestly, we, I don't know. Well, we might be closer than you think. We should give everybody though a warning though, because there are so many lovely brothers and sisters who track with us, who email with us, who communicate with us, who leave voicemails, all that stuff. They're following along in our lives. And because we're talking about creation, there's also this little piece, a lesser piece, the procreation, which, uh, <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> I love you. you can already see the segue happening. I can, it's which, a good which one. apparently you're well accomplished at, and I congratulate you, brother. But people should know that when you you made me laugh when you said like we'll talk about it next week unless something crazy <laughs> happens. Yeah, <laughs> which could be the birth of your son, who is actually yes. technically due this week. Yes, so, before we record our next episode. So. Yes. So loved ones, you may be patient with us over the next couple of weeks because we want to make sure that uh, Tony and his new son and his wife, my sister, are able to do all the things that come with all of that lovely procreation stuff. So, I mean, the world needs more people like you guys. I'm glad you're doing something about that. So I'm just in case things are a little bit different next week for whatever reason, or if it sounds like Tony is just like passed out on the microphone and I have to wake him up a couple of times. Yes. That's because there's a new human in his life for which yes. he's been charged with both physical and spiritual care. How about that? Sounds good. Yeah. If the episode doesn't come out on <laughs> time next good. week, don't send the search parties. It just means we had a baby. So um, yeah, thanks for that reminder. Uh, we do hope there won't be any major interruptions in the schedule, but uh, be flexible with us if there are. And Jesse, until next time, whenever that might be, <laughs> honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.